go. It's on. Thank you, Jim. Uh, I have to check the score here. Uh, at the end of the first quarter, Pittsburgh Steelers six, Cleveland three. He's a Browns fan. I'm a Steelers fan, so they're playing each other today. So the Lord gave me grace to check the score during worship. And uh, I, let me just say something about Jim before we jump into the, the word here today. Um, uh, Jim comes from a town that's very close to where I grew up. Now, he obviously grew up uh, later than me. I'm older than he is. And uh, I know it, it doesn't look like that, but uh, he's, he's a lot younger than me. And uh, we grew up in a place that was very monocultural. Uh, you know, almost all white people, in fact, we were talking about it, we never had a Chinese restaurant in our town. And so I never had Chinese food until I, I went to New York to college. And Jim said it was his junior year that we finally got a Chinese restaurant in that area. And we still can't get good Korean food. And I love Korean food. And so we grew up in a very monocultural place. But you know what's cool is that God has called us both to minister in urban areas that are incredibly diverse. And I'm, I'm very proud of Jim because it's not easy to go multicultural, to go urban when you've been raised in a, a rural place. And so I'm very proud of Jim, and I'm glad that he is ministering. In fact, you guys are his fruit. So, uh, Jim, good job, buddy. I'm proud of you. So, and I'm not even joking about that. <laughs> All right. Um, today I want to talk about transformation. And let me tell you a story that will kind of launch us to this topic. Uh, years ago when I was pastoring in California, we noticed that we had a lot of young men in our congregation that did not have father figures. And so there was the group, the 12, the 13, the 14-year-olds that really needed a father in that transition period, and they didn't have them. And so our men's ministry came up with an idea to do a discipleship program for that age group. And so we developed discipleship materials for fathers and if a young man, age 12, 13, or 14, didn't have a father, or maybe the father was an absentee father or not a believer, we assigned a man in the congregation to disciple that young man. And we didn't just do discipleship. We did fun stuff with them as well. And we culminated that uh, season with a men's retreat, a father-son retreat. And we went out into the wilds of Northern California to this retreat center and we uh, taught them basic workshops on how to be a man of honor and a man of integrity uh, and a man of purity. Uh, but we also, I think we did skeet shooting and uh, took them fishing and did all kinds of fun stuff. And then we closed with a service on Saturday night where we called them into their destiny as men of God. And it was almost like a Christian bar mitzvah. You know how the Jews have the bar mitzvah where they call their young men into manhood well, that's kind of what this was. And the way we closed the service was we had the men of the church come up to the front and they formed a hall. So the men faced each other. And then we had the young men stand down at one side and the fathers or the mentors stand at the other. And the fathers would say, Bryce Walborn, you are God's beloved son on whom his favor rests. Come forth into your destiny as a man of God. And then the young men would walk down that hall and the men of the church would lay hands on them and pray for them and prophesy their destiny as men of God, men of integrity. And uh, I mean, it was, it was very powerful. And uh, near the end, this man in our church, his name was John Barker. John was probably 80 years of age. 
He was uh, highly respected. He was an elder in our church. He had been a Marine uh, during World War II. He had stormed the beaches of Iwo Jima. He was a man's man. And everybody respected him. And he came up to me and he said, Pastor, I want to walk through that hall. I want to I be called into my destiny as a man of God. And I said, John, you're, you're 80 years old. You've lived a powerful life. Everybody respects you. You really don't need to walk through that hall. He goes, no. And he got tears in his eyes. He said, God's not done with me yet. There's more. I don't want to get stuck. I want to say yes to God, and I want to go to the next level that he has for me. And so John Barker stood at the other end, and I got to the other end, and I said, John Barker, you're God's beloved son on whom his favor rests. Come forth into your destiny as a man of God. And this 80-year-old guy walked down the hall, and the men prayed for him. And then that broke everything open because everybody wanted to walk through the hall. We didn't get out of there until after midnight. It was a powerful night. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. But I, I want to address what that man did. He refused to be content with where he was. He wanted more from God. And I think, folks, there's something about us that tends to give in to the status quo, and we think this is as good as it gets, and this is as good as I'm ever going to get, and we get stuck as Christians, and we need a transformation. In our denomination, we believe in the filling of the Holy Spirit. We believe in something called the deeper life. And, um, and, and both Jim and I could teach theologically about that, and I'm sure he has. But to be honest, what helps me is to look at a character, a case study, to see somebody in Scripture, and in this case, we're going to look at Gideon in Judges chapter 6, of how God brought transformation to Gideon, how God brought him from a place of status quo weakness and fear to a place of power and deliver, being a deliverer. And, and so if, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Judges 6. If, you, if not, uh, or if you trust me that it's really in the Bible, I have that uh, on, the, on the screen here. And, and we're going to look at Judges chapter 6. Now before I read this, let me make just a few comments to set the context. But by the way, when I was a young pastor, I would go to prayer meetings, and on more than one occasion, somebody prayed, uh, Ron, the spirit of Gideon is upon you. And I thought it was a compliment. I was like, yeah, yeah, I got the spirit of Gideon. And then I read the story, and I realized it wasn't a compliment, because Gideon was a weak, wimpy coward when God finds him. And, uh, and, and yet, it's a powerful story because God loves to use broken, weak people and turn their life around by the power of his grace and redemption and his spirit and bring transformation. And so Gideon's one of the deliverers in Judges that, that the Lord uses to set his people free. And remember, if you read Judges, it's about the cycle of sin, disobedience, rebellion, oppression, bondage, and then the people cry out for a deliverer and God hears them and brings them back to restoration. And then they live in freedom for a little bit and then they go back to sin, rebellion, disobedience, and then they cry out for help. And there's about 13 cycles where God raises up different deliverers, judges they're called in this context. And Gideon's one of those. And so Gideon is a type of his nation. If God can use a weak, fallible, flawed man like Gideon, he can turn a nation around. And so I have hope for me and you too, that if God can use us and turn us around, guess what? Philly can be renewed and revived as well. 
and, um, and, and any city in America because of the power of God. So let's look at this passage, and then I'll pull out some steps for transformation that Gideon walks through. The angel of the Lord came down and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite. Now, Joash he was the father of Gideon, and his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, pause there for a minute. Um, a little bit of agricultural education for city people here. When you thresh wheat, you don't do it in a wine press underneath a tree. You do it in an open place so that the wind can blow the chaff away. Because if you're doing it down in a closed place like Gideon is, uh, all the chaff is going to get in your respiratory system and it's going to be a mess. And, and so the fact that he is not out on a threshing floor is an indication of how fearful he was. So he was doing a job that would be miserable in this place simply because he was afraid of the Midianites. So we find him, and the angel of the Lord finds him, in a position of fear, cowardice, and hiding. Uh, I'm glad the Lord can find people there. Okay? When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And, and again, I don't think Gideon had ever heard anybody call him a mighty warrior. He was not a mighty warrior. And, and Gideon says, But sir... If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Now, I want you to notice that Gideon is a well-educated young man in the things of God. He knows the stories of God's deliverance. He knows about the miracles. He knows about the, the, the things that God has done in the past, but he hasn't seen much of it himself. In fact, none of it. Because he believes that the Lord has abandoned them. He has no direct relationship with God at this point. Well, the angel of the Lord, which is really a, a divine appearance, it's a theophany of the Lord himself. We, we can discern that as we walk through the passage. He turns to him again and says, go in the strength you have. And I love that phrase, folks, because often the Lord comes to us and says, go in the strength you have but are not using you see, if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you have way more than you think you do. And most of us do not use even a portion of what God has given us. In fact, let me tell you a story about that. Years ago, when I was in California, we were doing these revival renewal services where the power of God was breaking out. And um, it, it was a really incredible time of revival. And there was a woman that started to come to these services and just kind of observe. And somebody went up and talked to her because she didn't act like a Christian. And, and, and they started to talk to her. And she says, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm a witch. But I love seeing spiritual power like this. So if it's okay with you, could I please come and just watch? So we said, sure. You know, greater is he who's in us than who's in you. And so we certainly said our prayers and made sure we were doing, you know, make, putting our armor on. But she came to those revival services. And ultimately, she, she came to faith in Christ. And uh, she got deliverance, real freedom. And then she told us this, that all her life, she could see spiritual power on people, like auras. And she could spot a Christian coming a mile away because they had more power than anybody else. But then she said this, but I've learned not to fear Christians because none of them had any idea of what they had. Folks, listen, the weakest, wimpiest Christian has more spiritual authority in your tiny pinky through the blood of Christ and the authority of Jesus Christ than you can even imagine. 
And I think when you walk into a room, the demons of hell are shaking in fear. And so I think a word from the Lord for us, as it came to Gideon, go in the strength you have. And he goes on and he says, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sending you. Go in the strength you have. Save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? And Gideon has another excuse. He says, but sir, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the biggest wimp in my family. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew, okay? Um, I'm just kidding about that, in case somebody knows Hebrew here. The Lord answered, I will be with you. Listen, it's not about you what he's saying to Gideon. It's not about you. I know you're a coward. I know you're weak. That's why I'm choosing you to show that the surpassing power is of God, not of man. But I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites together. So Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. Okay. Here's Gideon having an encounter with God. And he goes, okay, wait here. Can you wait just a minute? And the Lord says, I will wait until you return. Aren't you glad God is patient? (laughs) And so Gideon goes off and he prepares a young goat from an ephah, a flower he made from bread, bread without yeast, and putting the meat in the basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. And with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Now here's where the transformation of Gideon begins. And I want to give you three steps that Gideon goes through. And each one of these steps results in something in his life. And so there's a step and there's a result. And I believe that this process that he goes through is for every single one of us. And I don't even think it's just a one-time transformation process. I think it's something that God wants to repeat in our lives over the cycle of our walk with him. Well, let's look at this. The first step I see in Gideon's transformation is this. He goes through a conversion in his thinking about God. Now, please understand, when I use this word conversion, I am not talking about a conversion of salvation. Because Gideon was in the people of God. He was a person of the covenant. uh, So I believe he was already saved. There is salvation in the old covenant. But it is a conversion in his thinking about God. Conversion in his thinking. Look what happens. When Gideon realized, and that word means when his eyes were opened, when Gideon's eyes were opened, he realized it was the angel of the Lord, meaning the Lord himself, a theophany, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And what he's saying there is, and I'm going to die. Because he knew what the scripture said. He knew that if you saw God face to face, you, you could not live through it. And so there's tremendous fear that comes over him in this minute. Because now it's not just the stories about God. Now it's not just about a God from the past that parted the waters and set the people free from the the Egyptians. Now it's a God who's up close and personal and right in his face. And folks, I believe if we're going to go through transformation, we need a fresh encounter with God. Uh, I think especially those of us who have been in church most of our life, we know the stories. We have heard what God did in the past but there is something about a fresh encounter with God that changes the way we think about him. 
And I don't believe we can go to a new level until we break free from the old patterns of thought that are holding us captive. And, and there's nothing that will break a person free from old patterns of thinking about God like an encounter with his presence. Now, I believe this weekend at College of Prayer, a number of people had encounters with God that were very, very powerful. But I want you to know something. You don't have to go to a College of Prayer to have an encounter. I believe you can encounter him this morning in a fresh way. Over my life, I've had numerous encounters where God showed me that he is more powerful than I thought he was. He is closer than I thought. He's nearer than I thought. And, and those encounters have always caused me to pray this prayer. Oh God, I'm sorry, I have made you too small in my eyes. And I think it's time for an encounter. Let me tell you one. In 1998, I went to Lima, Peru with a group of pastors and we were down there preaching in different churches and we were just mentoring and doing leadership development with pastors. And, and I was in this church on a Sunday morning preaching and it was a very poor church, dirt floor, no walls. It had sheets hanging you know, from rafters to kind of form the boundary of the church. There were scripture verses written on the sheets in Spanish. And, and I preached that morning out of Ephesians chapter five and I did not even mention healing. And, uh, and at the end, I gave an invitation for anybody that wanted prayer. And the first person to get up from their seat to come up to the front for prayer was a little girl about nine years of age. And when she stood up and walked into the aisle, she waited for her mom to come out because she was blind. And she grabbed her mom by the elbow and she came to the front. And as she was coming to the front, I was saying, Oh, Lord, I really hope she wants to be filled with the Spirit. I hope she needs prayer for a cold. But if she asks for prayer to heal her blind eyes, I'm in trouble, God. Because I'll be honest, I did not have faith for blind eyes to be open. And so she came up to the front, and I had a translator, because I don't speak any Spanish, and we went down to the front. And through the translator, we asked this question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? And to my dismay, she said, I want to see. And I went, oh, okay. And I, I prayed that prayer you've prayed. Oh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I, and I think we make a living praying that prayer instead of expecting God to answer it. And I, I put my hands on her cheeks and I put my thumbs on her eyes. And I prayed a prayer that, I'll be honest, on a, if you're going to grade it on a scale of one to ten, it was like a two, okay, in terms of anointing and power. Oh, God. I believe you're the healer, touch, you know, something like that. And as I started to pray, I felt tears on my hands. And then, before I really finished the prayer, she pushed my hand away. And she pointed up, and she began to read the verses in Spanish off the sheets. I found out later that she had been born able to see and had lost her eyesight to some kind of a disease or something that had happened about a year or two before. And, and she started to cry and shout as she read these verses and her mother was crying and my translator was crying. And then she ran out the back. Her mother ran after her. My translator ran after them both. I'm up in the front of this church with a bunch of people. I don't know any Spanish. So I just started to pray the only words I knew, uh, mas, senor, and fuego, and that worked, okay? And, uh, and, and so I'm praying for people as best I could, and I'm kind of thinking, how rude. You know, she gets healed and runs away. And, uh, but then about 10 minutes later, she comes walking in the back with a man in his 50s, found out that it was her dad. Her dad had walked away from the Lord when his little girl had lost her sight. And the first thing she wanted to do was go get her father. 
to show him what Jesus had done. And we saw the second miracle that morning as that man came back to faith in Christ. Now, you know what that did to me? I went, Lord, don't ever let me go to church the same way again. Lord, help me to realize that it's not just the stories of what you used to do, but you're here, you're present today, and I need a conversion into my thinking about God. Now, here's the result. When you go through that kind of an encounter with God and a conversion, you are terrified. And that's what's happening. The Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid. You're not going to die because he's filled with terror. Because when you encounter God, your first reaction is fear. But the Lord says, peace, do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. The Lord who calms my terror is the little literal Hebrew there. You see, when you encounter God, the fear of the Lord takes its rightful place. And it is a scary thing to encounter God. But here's the good news. When the fear of the Lord takes its rightful place, you fear nothing else. And that's why you can have peace. And so when the fear of the Lord, which really is the beginning of wisdom, comes, the result is the peace of God comes. Well, there's a second step. Second thing I see that Gideon goes through is he goes through a a step of consecration. So God changes his thinking about him, and then here's what happens. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height, and using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer a second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town. So notice this, he's still got some fear going. Uh, There's not like an instantaneous change, but he does have enough courage to do it, but he does it at night. Now here's what's going on here. God says to Gideon, now that you're convinced of who I really am, now that you've been converted in your thinking about me, It's time to get rid of the mixture. It's time to get rid of the idols and the divided allegiances and the ungodly loyalties. It's time to get rid of the mixture in your life. It's time to consecrate yourself to me. You see, the high places in every town in Israel were the places of worship. And at one point, these high places had been pure altars of worship to Yahweh. Uh, But But over time, syncretism had crept in and uh, altars to Baal and Asherah poles were put up. And and now here's the point. Um, There's not too many older people here, but one of the things that happen is that older people always turn their altars of worship into idols. And when the new generation comes along, we have to tear down the idols so that the altars can be recovered. Because the point of an altar is the God behind it, not the altar itself. The point of worship is always the God behind it, not the style of worship we use. And so I'm always warning older people, be careful that you don't turn your altars into idols. And I'm also warning younger people, be careful of what kind of altars you build, because it's never about the style, it's about the God behind it. But God has to speak to Gideon, and he says, consecrate yourself, get rid of the mixture, get rid of the things in your life that are robbing you from pure worship of God. Now folks, Here's the issue. When you encounter God in a fresh way, he will always put his fingers on things in your life that have been blocking his presence. And he will often point out things 
that aren't big deals to other people, but he says, I want that area. I want that area. And, and what he always does to me is he always convicts me of things that he's not convicting my friends of. And I, and I hear this little phrase, others may, you may not. And I'm thinking, well, that's not fair. But listen, it's not God being you know, legalistic. It's God saying, I want to give you more of my presence, more of my power. And in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, we read these words. When Jonah finally realized this in the belly of the fish, he says, I now realize those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And so what God is saying is, consecrate yourself, get rid of the mixture, and I have grace and power and anointing for you that you will never experience until you say, yes, God, I will consecrate myself to you. And so Gideon goes through this step of consecration. Now, what happens next? The result is this. Gideon experiences divine protection. Divine protection. Let me, let me explain what happens next in this story. The men in the village wake up the next morning and they discover that somebody had torn down the idols and the bales and they're furious. And they said, somebody's going to die. Who did this? And word gets out that it's Gideon. And so they head to Gideon's father's house because Gideon still lived with mommy and daddy. Okay, it tells you something about Gideon, all right? And they go to Joash's house and they knock on the door and they say, bring out Gideon. He tore down the idols. He has to die. Now remember, Gideon was afraid of his family. And I don't think it's a stretch to say he was afraid of his father. And what happens next I don't think there was anybody more surprised in this story than Gideon himself. I think he was in his back bedroom as he listened to the next encounter. The men of the village came, the hostile crowd, and they knocked at the door. But Joash, Gideon's dad, replied to the hostile crowd around him. Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerubbabel, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. Folks, here's what's happened. I, I think Joash had been waiting his whole life to see his son step up with courage. And I think Joash had probably been pretty hard on Gideon for being a weakling and a coward. But now finally... When Gideon steps up and does something courageous and the crowd comes to get him, he steps to the door of his home and he says, if you're coming after my son, you got to go through me first. And I think Gideon is in the back room going, whoa, I've been waiting my whole life to hear that from my father. And I think there's incredible healing in that moment for him, probably amazing healing between father and son. But here's the point I want to make. There, there are times when we talk about consecrating ourselves to God, getting rid of mixture, getting rid of ungodly loyalties and divided allegiances that people say, oh, I can't afford to be that radical. I can't afford to be that consecrated. Folks, listen to me. You can't afford not to be that consecrated. Because if you decide you're going to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, if you decide that you're not going to consecrate yourself to God, then you have to be your own protection. You have to be your own source. You have to be the one that fights off the enemy when he comes. But if you say, God, I'm selling out to you, I will consecrate myself, my family, my business, everything I do belongs to you, God. I am tearing down all the idols. Then at that point, God the Father steps to the door of your house. And when the enemy comes knocking, he says, if you're coming after my son or my daughter, you have to come through me first. You see, the minute you consecrate yourself to the Lord, 
is the minute that divine protection begins to flow on a whole new level. And Gideon experienced that in the process of his transformation. Well, the third step is one we see coming. He becomes a man who's controlled by the Holy Spirit. Controlled by the Holy Spirit. Converted in his thinking about God, gets rid of the mixture, and then he has a fresh encounter, a filling, whatever you want to call it, a coming upon of the Holy Spirit that changes him forever. Now all the Midianites and Amalekites and other Eastern peoples joined forces. By the way, it's, it's worth noting that at the beginning of this passage, he was only afraid of the Midianites. So don't think for a minute when you go for it with God, your enemies are going to disappear. The truth is they joined forces. But now he doesn't have to fight the battle alone. So they joined forces and they crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. But then the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Literally, it means he took possession of the man Gideon. You know, when I read this passage and I kind of unpack it, people go, hey, wait a minute. You mean uh, a believer can be possessed? Yeah, a believer is supposed to be possessed by the spirit of God. We are to be possessed in a way that literally it means that Gideon became the cloak that the Holy Spirit wrapped himself in and brought deliverance to his people. Gideon became a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he blew the trumpet and summoned the Ambizorites to follow him. And you know the story, Gideon and his 300 took out all the enemy. And so the result was power. The result was power. Now, let me just note a couple things, and then we'll close. Right after this happens, Gideon has gone through this transformation. And you would think that he is ready to do great exploits with no fear, with no issues at all. But if you read the story, it says that he was uh, questioning the timing of the attack. Uh, and in fact, it says that they paused and they got water at the spring of Harad, and you know what the spring of Harad means? The spring of fear and trembling. I think it was named after Gideon stopped there for a drink. And, and that's where the Lord weaned down the army to 300. And then Gideon is still not sure about this. He's questioning, he's questioning. And, um, and, and so he sneaks down like a spy to the camp of the enemy to figure out, is this the right time to attack? Still questioning. In fact, the angel of the Lord says to him, are you ready to go for it? And there's a pause in the text there. And, and the angel of the Lord says, well, if you're still afraid, sneak down and listen to what's going on in the enemy camp. And so you know what he does? He sneaks down. And as he's kneeling there behind the bushes, he hears two enemy soldiers talking around the fire. And the one enemy soldier says to the other, man, I just had the weirdest dream. And the other one says, oh yeah, what was it? Tell me. He says, well, I had this dream that a loaf of barley came rolling down a hill and just wiped us out. Uh, and, and the other guy goes, oh, I have the interpretation of that. There's a guy named Gideon, and he's going to come down and wipe us out with the army of the Lord. And Gideon is in the bushes, and he goes, did you hear that? It really is God. After going through all this experience, it takes a prophetic dream interpreted by one of the enemy soldiers for Gideon to pull the, the plug and say it's time to go. And so what that tells me is that even though we go through this transformation, guess what? We can never stop relying on God. In fact, the truth is, later in his life, he leads his people back into bondage because he forgets that it's not just about a one-time transformation. It's a daily process of saying, Lord, convert me in my thinking about you. I consecrate myself afresh. I want to be filled with your power. Let me close with one quote, and then we'll pray. 
Um, A.W. Tozer said this years ago, and it's still true. He said, we are turning out from the Bible schools of this country year after year, young men and women who know the theory or the theology of the spirit-filled life, but do not enjoy the experience. These go out into churches to create and turn a generation of Christians who have never felt the power of the Spirit. In other words, they know about the stories, they know what God used to do, but they've never encountered them for himself. He goes on, they've never felt the power of the Holy Spirit. They know nothing personally about the inner fire. The next generation will drop even the theory and the theology. That is actually the course some groups have taken over the past years. How long, I love this question, how long must we in America go on listening to men who can only tell us what they have read and heard about and never what they themselves have felt and heard and seen? Folks, I believe that God wants true vine to be a place where people have encountered the presence of God and been converted in their thinking. They consecrate themselves so that the Lord becomes their protector in a fresh way and, and that you become people controlled and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think when you do that, I don't think this room will be big enough for the people that are hungering for that kind of a transformation. And I believe this, folks, it, when, when just a band of 300, and I know you're even smaller than 300, but the truth is God can do incredible things through a small band of warriors who say, Lord, we now believe you're bigger than I ever dreamed possible. We consecrate ourselves to you and we will be people filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Will you stand so I can pray with you? As we close, let me just pray these three things over you. Number one, some of you right now, in fact, I think most of us, we need to say, Lord, we're sorry. We repent that we have made you too small in our eyes. Oh, Lord, would you give us a fresh encounter with you? Spirit of God, would you visit us so that our relationship with you is not just about the stories of what you used to do, but would you draw near to your people in a fresh encounter so that we would be converted in our thinking about you and what you want to do in our church when we gather together and in our streets? Lord, convert us. And Lord, we ask this morning, in fact, I believe this morning the Holy Spirit has been putting his, his finger on idols in your life. Things that he's saying, I want that. Surrender that area. Surrender your money, your finances. Surrender your time. Surrender that relationship that is mixture in your life and it's robbing you of spiritual power. I think it's time to say, God, now that we're convinced of who you are, we want to get rid of the mixture. Consecrate yourself to him. Say, Jesus, I will serve no other gods. I'm tearing down the idols. And then watch as your father, God, steps to the door of your house and says to those things that have been threatening you, if you're coming after my son or my daughter, you have to go through me first. So, Lord, we trust you for protection. And, Lord, we now just extend our hands. Would you just hold your hands out? We receive the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you possess us with the Spirit of God? Spirit of God, come upon us. Drive out our fear. Drive out our hesitancy, our doubt, our unbelief. 
May we be people filled with the presence and power of Almighty God. That the people around us would know what is that? There's something different about you. And then, Lord, we can help set them free. Thanks, Lord, that you love to use weak, broken people, fearful people, just like Gideon, just like Ron. And so we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. struck me at the very beginning I think it was verse 13 the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and he said the Lord is with you valiant warrior and Gideon responded with if the Lord is with us why is all this bad stuff happening Like, why, why aren't things better and I've pretty much asked a version of that question of the Lord a thousand times in my life Lord if you're with me or you're with us why why aren't things better? And I want to help us create a distinction in our thinking between the Lord's presence with us and how smooth things go. Because those two don't always, they're not married. You know, sometimes when the Lord is with you, everything works. But ultimately, Jesus was crucified. And of course, he was resurrected. But he went through that crucifixion and almost all the disciples were martyred. So I just, in our thinking, I don't want us to equate the Lord's presence with how smoothly things go. And, I, you know, you trust that the Lord is present because he said he would be there. When Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory, uh, or he said, who will go with me? God said, I will go with you and I will give you rest. When Jesus sent out the disciples during the Great Commission, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So you need to know that the Lord is with you, no matter how much you feel that he may or may not be, no matter how well or poorly things are going in your life, his presence uh, is not dependent on good circumstances in your life. Right, I'm going to make a hard left turn here, and uh, I want us to, to do something, and I want us to minister to Ron, he's poured three days into our city and our church. So I want to let you stay comfortable right in that seat, Ron. Because if I were you, I would want to be sitting. But I want to ask anyone that would be willing to come over and surround Ron. I want to pray for him. He's still got to drive home, and he goes to work tomorrow. And he's given us a whole weekend. I just want to bless him and pray for him. So any of you that that have prayers to pray, just pray them out blessing Ron and then I'll wrap up when we're done. There's no place I can go your love won't find me No place I can hide that you don't I could fall that your love wouldn't catch me you see it all you 
Understood your love, understand. 